Teddy Rowe arrived in the Soviet Union in April 1968 with no illusions. He assumed he'd be watched, that some KGB spook would rifle through his stuff, that he'd be followed. Maybe even people he'd meet would be police informants. It was a universal expectation. You know, here comes somebody with potential who is fairly low down, but on a trajectory, on a flight path, that maybe they'll be important to the Soviet Union someday. That's probably how the KGB saw Teddy. Here was this American who just happened to be a staff member of U.S. Senator Mike Mansfield, one of the most powerful American politicians. By the late 1960s, Mansfield had become a critic of the Vietnam War and urged the diplomatic end to the conflict. Vietnam was a mistake, a tragic mistake. Soviet officials likely figured Teddy could be a window, maybe even a line to Mike Mansfield and the American government more broadly. Perhaps Teddy was a contact deserving of cultivation. They could also figure out Teddy's intentions. It was the Cold War, and the Soviet Union and the United States were mortal enemies, and shared mutual suspicions of each other. Any information about the other was an advantage. As you heard in episode one, the KGB report on Teddy was what led me to him. So if the KGB saw Teddy as a window into America, the report might tell us what the Soviets were so afraid of, and the realities behind the Soviet monitoring of tourists in general. I'm Sean Guillory, your guide on this journey, and this is Teddy Goes to the USSR, Episode 2, Teddy Meets the KGB. Act 1, Spies Like Us. I remember when I first wrote Teddy about the KGB report on him. I couldn't help wondering how creepy it must be to learn that the KGB reported on you, that they were watching you, and learned so 50 years after the fact. So when I visited Teddy at his home in Billings, Montana in January 2020, we devoted an entire session to the KGB report on him. Maybe I better skim it again. So what I'd like, what I'd like to do actually is to have you read it. And then if you want to comment on something, you read the entire paragraph. Okay. You know. That's a fairly substantial reading assignment. Yes. Uh, in the sense that you will use up a, a lot of your tape. Before we get into the report, let me describe it. It's pretty ordinary, I'm sad to say. The paper is off-white with a red stamp of the Soviet hammer and sickle at the top. The letterhead is a mouthful. The Committee of State Security of the Council of Ministers of the Ukrainian SSR, in Ukrainian and Russian. It's titled Memorandum, and scrawled across the top in wavy blue ink is Notify Comrade Shellist, signed by Vitaly Fedorchuk. This report on Teddy Rowe didn't just circulate among lowly functionaries. It came from the highest offices of the Ukrainian KGB to the highest official in Ukraine. In 1968, Petro Shellist was the first secretary of the Ukrainian Communist Party. He played a key role in ousting Khrushchev four years earlier. Leonid Brezhnev tasked him with courting the other Ukrainian party bosses to his side. Vitaly Fedorchuk was the head of the KGB's third directorate 
in charge of military counterintelligence in Ukraine. He was known for his vigilance in crushing dissent, particularly intellectuals, nationalists, and religious believers. He often warned of impending imperialist aggression and CIA plots. So this off-white sheet of paper connected Teddy to some of the top officials in the Soviet Union. I'm commenting on a uh, report by my handlers during my trip. This is dated 20th of June, 1968. In April, May of this year, Teddy Rowe, born in 1934, is suspected of involvement in American intelligence, visited the Soviet Union, including several Ukrainian cities, as an American tourist. I'd like, like to comment on that paragraph mm -hmm. only to say that uh, uh, is suspected of involvement in American intelligence. I have never, ever had any connection with American intelligence. When you came back from the Soviet Union, were, were you approached by anyone from the American government? I was not. Which surprised me in a way, but not in another way. Came back and found my boss was so busy, I really didn't have the time, or he didn't have the time. I didn't have anything so exciting to report to him. Did it surprise you that having spent three months in the Soviet Union and the fact that you were working for a senator, no one approached you and asked you for your, I don't know, anything, questions, debriefing, or anything from the American government? No, I was not surprised because uh, in order for that to happen, they would have had to get permission from him. I mean, it would be just done as a matter of protocol, and he was up to his eyeballs, and I wasn't going to press him on it. I think it was unfortunate. Um, it would have made more sense for me to have that kind of exit conversation, but I had it over time. Oh. I had it over time, so that was not... Uh, but in an unofficial way. Yes, in an unofficial way. As I sat across from Teddy, part of me did wonder if he had some CIA connection. I don't know if it was out of some paranoia, or maybe even hoped since it would make for a very juicy story. But I believe him. He's not a spy, and I doubt he'd talk to me if he was. But my suspicion wasn't all that crazy. The CIA did send agents posing as tourists to the USSR in the 1950s and early 1960s. And the agency even recruited tourists and others to gather information. In the late 1950s, there was a, something called Operation Lincoln, where the CIA briefed tourists before they went to the Soviet Union and then debriefed them afterwards. This is Andrew Jacobs. You might remember him from episode one. He's a historian who wrote a study of American tourists to the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Eventually, this was curtailed because the Soviet Union caught on to it and then banned a whole bunch of things like taking photographs of bridges or airports or certain factories. The details of Operation Lincoln remain classified. Everything we know about it is from a 1963 article by Robert Vandeveer. The CIA developed Operation Lincoln as a covert scheme to use American tourists to report on Soviet military sites. Andrew Jacobs says that the CIA curtailed Operation Lincoln after the U-2 incident in 1960. Recruiting tourists for covert intelligence gathering just became too risky and not all that fruitful. But by the late 1960s, U.S. officials were more concerned about Americans' poor behavior in the Soviet Union. The State Department issued a laundry list of do's and don'ts in the USSR 
It warned tourists to think before taking photographs and avoid snapping slums, the poor, military installations, or border areas. Breaking Soviet legal and social norms could lead to arrest and deportation and an international scandal. They also found the behavior of many American tourists totally embarrassing. But Americans kept getting in trouble with the Soviet cops for exchanging money with street traders and buying and selling goods on the black market. Most of the time, the Soviets didn't prosecute anyone. They deported some people, but there was a Soviet official who told one of the American higher-ups at the embassy that the crimes committed by American tourists was far greater than the Americans knew about, but they needed the tourists to keep coming because they were making so much money off of them. So they were willing to overlook a lot of things. Teddy was well aware of the restrictions on taking photos. Snapshots of people in uniform, certain buildings and sites were forbidden, but Teddy did it anyway. I'll say it over and over about photographs. Uh, photographs would have been one way for me to have gotten a one-way ticket to the, you know, to jail. So when I took photographs, they were either surreptitious or they were, I had an excuse in advance that I would give if somebody, why did you take this picture? Did any of your photographs ever get confiscated, any of your film? Nope. Nobody ever asked for it. I, I, I had a sort of a push-pull relationship with uh, the Soviet Union. If they knew that I worked for the majority leader of the United States Senate, they would handle me differently. I had to have a decently large sin, I think, for them to ever pull me up on charges or made charges. But uh, I, I just, I had to be careful, but I, I figured I had a couple of things working in my favor, so. So Teddy wasn't CIA. He was like a lot of Americans in the Soviet Union. He was curious. He wanted to see Soviet life with his own eyes. The Soviets, however, treated him as if he was a spy, or at least up to no good. Here's Teddy again reading from the KGB report. We unofficially photographed Rose's detailed diary entries in which he critically evaluated certain aspects of Soviet life and work. None of this was news to Teddy. He knew the KGB was searching his hotel room and luggage. When I left the room each day, morning, I would um, find a piece of thread, different lengths, and before I closed my suitcase, I never had a lock on it. When I left my suitcase, I'd place that thread or a couple of them in strategic spots, and when it was disturbed, invariably every time I came back, I knew that I was being watched. And then so I printed a, a note to them in capital letters saying, if you want to know any of this stuff, come and talk to me, I'll tell you. Teddy was no spy, but the KGB's surveillance made him act like one. So I had to adjust the way that I wrote. And so a mix of English and Spanish. And Greg's shorthand an elliptical script with bisecting lines used in dictation and court reporting. Sometimes it was done to hide identity. Sometimes it was to, to mangle intent or responses from people on the street. But uh, I had developed in my own mind a code. I wrote it in code and I broke it with 
knowing what the code was. Keeping tabs on foreigners was routine, and like Teddy, most Americans in the USSR expected it. So what kind of surveillance could an American expect from the KGB? I put the question to Alex Hazanov. You also remember him from the last episode. He wrote a study on foreign tourism in the Soviet Union in the post-Stalin years. If you're a high-profile target, like a politician or a journalist or somebody who's connected to immigrant organizations, you get the full package. That meant room searches, tailed, intercepted mail, approached by undercover agents or informants, provoked into breaking the law, and of course, wiretapping. Every interest hotel has an office in which the KGB sits, which has wiretapping offices, which are connected to certain rooms, and you're probably in those rooms. Normal tourists got. If you're just a normal tourist, um, then you get something that is kind of a cursory. Your tourist guide uh, reports on you. To make sure you're not up to no good, we'll address in-tourist guides reporting to the KGB later in this episode. But in general, all you can expect is kind of a routine, is this guy just a tourist or not? All of this surveillance never amounted to much. In his memoir, Spymaster, the former KGB general Oleg Kalugin wrote that, all of this activity yielded little, if anything, in the way of concrete results. For the most part, thousands upon thousands of pages of transcribed conversations piled up in our files to no avail. But if that was the case, then what was the point of all of it? There is no doubt that the vast majority of the stuff that was gathered about tourists was pointless, and the KGB knew it. You have to understand that the KGB is a Soviet organization. It has branches everywhere, and all of them have assignments. I think it's as simple as that. You have to create this information because your job is to create the information. This doesn't mean that the KGB only ran on bureaucratic inertia. KGB officers believed foreigners were dangerous. They were worried about stuff like... Pornography, stuff like religion, stuff like pop music. And tourists are vectors of infection. So while a lot of this stuff is fluff, there is a real sense of danger too. But it's not a danger that you can do much about really. And I think on some level they understand this. You can't stop pop music. You can just try and harass people about listening to it. A tourist had to check a few boxes before the KGB took interests. If you're really like going out of your way to be political and visit dissidents, visit refugees and so forth. Or if you were politically connected back home like Teddy. If the KGB did take an interest in a tourist, the police would... First of all, be visible. You would be tailed on the street. There would be a surveillance of you that's very visible. There would be a breaking into your room and you will see that somebody broke into your room. And that would be like 95% of what happens. It's just trying to make you feel uncomfortable. And the KGB would harass any Soviet citizen you visited or to pressure them to become informants. In a small minority of cases. You might get uh, detained, you might get deported, but in all, uh, in, in, I believe in, in the 30 or 40 years of post-Stalin travel to the Soviet Union, there's only five or six Americans who get in real trouble, and all of them were actually probably connected to the CIA. We don't know the extent of tourist surveillance, but most tourists weren't followed. There were just too many tourists to follow. And as Andrew Jacobs says, the Soviets often looked the other way because they wanted tourist cash. Ironically, though, the American belief that the USSR was an omnipotent police state had certain advantages. For some tourists, the allure of visiting the USSR was the possibility of being treated like a spy, a chance for them to cosplay the Cold War game of international espionage. So the idea of like an omnipresent big brother or surveillance, that might have scared away some, but it also attracted some who wanted to live out their own kind of personal James Bond movie or spy novel or something like that. 
but that also drew a lot of people in the supposed danger of visiting such a far off place and a place that was supposedly the main enemy of their home country. Act two, Fear Factor. There's a Soviet poster of a smiling, doll-like American tourist with long legs held together by a dollar sign. He's carrying files reading cultural exchange and tourism. His American baseball cap reads NSA, the National Security Agency. Lurking on the side is a shadowy puppet master labeled CIA, manipulating the doll's legs with his demon-like hands. I already talked about the CIA's use of tourists in part one. I bring up this cartoon for another reason. It tells the Soviet citizen to be wary of foreign tourists, for you don't know the dark forces behind them. Now, Alex Hazanov says that this mentality is indicative of what the German sociologist Andreas Graeber calls state paranoia. State paranoia is when a country's basic understanding of the outside world, that it is surrounded by enemies that enemies are everywhere, uh, and therefore the state must be constantly vigilant. Now, being paranoid doesn't mean you don't have enemies. Indeed, tourists smuggled all sorts of forbidden items, Bibles, pornography, literature, magazines, and other contraband. So they feel that there is a real, there is a paranoia and there is a real enemy there. And that means there is a network of surveillance that's, again, kind of hard to assess how big or how effective it is, but it is very large. Soviet state paranoia has a storied history. It reached a fever pitch in the late 1930s during the Great Terror. But during the Cold War, it reveals the contradictory nature of hosting foreign tourists in the first place. While the Soviets wanted tourists, they also saw them as dangerous, especially Americans. So Americans are probably the most dangerous of foreign tourists. And they were conceived in the, the reports as people who were the most interested in propagandizing in the Soviet Union and of kind of arguing with their guides and trying to meet with uh, Soviet people and convince them about the superiority of the American way of life and also to bring over goods and convince them that life was much better in the United States. This was especially the case when it came to American journalists. I asked Dina Feinberg about Soviet surveillance of American journalists. Dina is a history professor at the City College of London and author of Cold War Correspondence, Soviet and American Reporters on the Ideological Front Lines. She says Soviet officials went through extensive lengths to manage foreign journalists. Foreign journalists were even housed in special apartment complexes. Which also kind of double as their offices. So they would have like the office on the first floor and the apartment on the top floor or vice versa. Albeit in more upscale parts of Moscow. I think Kuduzovsky Prospekt. Concentrating foreign correspondence was also a way to monitor their activities and keep them isolated from Soviet citizens. Each building entry had a guard ostensibly to look after their safety and to make sure they're not bothered. But this guard was there to monitor visitors and deter. Dissidents, politicals, strange people, etc. So essentially kind of surveillance and screening of their interactions and their guests. Then there was the KGB bugging journalists' apartments and offices. So they would never talk about really important things in their houses, assuming that they are listened on. The Soviet security is very interested in foreigners, in Americans, let alone American journalists. And American journalists face surveillance all the time. So there would be people who would be following them. They need 
permission to travel anywhere away from Moscow. Quite often, these permissions are refused. And quite often, these permissions are granted or denied based on what the Soviets think about the journalists and how these journalists report on the Soviet Union. And just like with Teddy, the KGB conducted all sorts of operations to identify which... Organization this person in Lithuania belongs to, whether he's a post-Soviet or anti-Soviet, if you are a journalist or political activist, probably your room is going to get bugged and broken into at some point. KGB surveillance was a hodgepodge in practice, but one thing was clear. There is a very large network of surveillance. Not quite certain how effective it is or how all-encompassing it is. The KGB certainly aspired to a big brother-like network. Alex says that he came across one document where... In the early 70s, uh, the KGB was trying to build a mainframe. It will basically document every movement by every foreign tourist in the country, just like total computerized surveillance. It's unknown if such a system ever got off the ground. Teddy wasn't in the USSR as a journalist, but KGB's suspicions of him were similar. The KGB report on Teddy accused him of trying to poison Soviet society with his Americanness. Here's Teddy reading the charges. We obtained information that Roe actively made contact with Soviet citizens, tried to promote the American way of life. The American tried to get a manuscript from a Soviet citizen for publication in the United States under a pseudonym, stating that he would not suffer the fate of Sinyavsky and others. A manuscript? What? I am totally baffled by that statement. Um... I did not try to get a manuscript from anybody, and I frankly, well, Daniel Sinyavsky was, was in the news in those days, but I could not tell you now who he was and what he did. The only thing I remember from your diary is that you, you were talking to a young person, and you asked... What, what about Sinyavsky? Yeah, because it, it was a general discussion about what are some young authors that you really like, and you asked, well, what about Sinyavsky? And, and I'm was... sure that I, I heard about him during the trip, mm -hmm. and then that was the time I've never heard about him since. So, so I, I have no idea what point they're trying to make. I presume that he was a dissident. Mm -hmm. I was siding with the dissident, and therefore they would be interested in Soviet authorities were concerned about American tourists bringing unauthorized literature into the country. They were even more worried about subversive literature being published outside the country. Confiscating an American news magazine or porno mag was one thing. Soviet literature printed in Western countries resulted in international scandal. This is what happened in 1956, when an Italian communist ferried a manuscript of Boris Pasternak's Dr. Zhivago out of the USSR. Dr. Zhivago was published in Italy in 1957. Pasternak won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1958. I've swallowed the award to Mr. Pasternak of the Nobel Prize for Literature, which subsequently he decided to refuse. Evidence that the CIA was directly behind Pasternak's Nobel remains inconclusive but the agency did see the novel as a weapon in the Cold War. The CIA quickly published a Russian edition and then ran an elaborate operation to get it into Soviet citizens' hands. The book's film adaptation won five Academy Awards in 1966. The winner is... Winner is the winner is... The winner is... For Dr. Zhivago. 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 Dr.
history has killed it. The Zhivago affair was one of the main scandals of the Cold War, and the Soviet Union was the loser. Dr. Zhivago was certainly on the KGB's mind when its agents arrested Andrei Simnyavsky and Yuli Daniel in September 1965. Sinyavsky and Daniel were convicted for the dissemination of slanderous inventions defamatory to the Soviet political system. Basically, some of their work was smuggled abroad and published under the pseudonyms Abram Terz and Nikolai Arzak. Sinyavsky and Daniel were sentenced to five and seven years of hard labor. The Sinyavsky-Daniel trial was a significant moment in the birth of the Soviet human rights movement. Both were well-known Moscow intellectuals. Sinyavsky was a prominent critic. Daniel translated and wrote critical literature and hosted gatherings in his apartment. But Moscow's intellectuals didn't cower as they did before past repressions. They staged a protest in the center of Moscow and developed mutual aid for Sinyavsky, Daniel, and their families. Trying to solicit a manuscript wasn't the only thing the KGB accused Teddy of doing. Here's the report again. In addition, he described Soviet reality in a biased manner, criticized the living conditions of the Soviet people, accused the Soviet state and people for lack of understanding between the two great states, and emphasized with regret that all key decisions and intentions in the Soviet Union were sh shrouded in secrecy. But Teddy never thought of himself as a disinterested observer of the Soviet system. And though he wasn't knee-jerk anti-Soviet, he certainly wasn't pro-Soviet either. Yes, I was critical of what I saw because I didn't see that it had to be that way. It just seemed to me that they were holding back their own people from living better and making the Soviet Union a, a more powerful and a credible country. The KGB took photographs of Teddy's diary. Here's a diary passage in the report. I would like to attend, this is in quotes, so apparently this, this is ascribed to me. I would like to attend a high-level meeting where economic problems related to consumer goods are decided. They must be alarming. They cannot hide the inequalities between the standard of living in the country, which is a second world power, and small European countries. The fact that the USSR is a country of paradoxes is beyond doubt. Well, I, I, I want to stop here for a second because I want you to talk about what you mean by paradox. Well, I don't know that I ever used that word, but but the next paragraph tends, tends uh, okay, to, continue. to fill it. Okay. But the government makes it such a paradox by its propaganda and the tendency to hide everything. If they did not constantly hide what is impossible to hide, tourists and others would shoot fewer picturesque scenes. Each country, including the United States, has its slums and ghettos in the USSR with its vast spaces and other problems. Teddy thinks that many of the social issues in Soviet society were pretty normative. Every country's got problems. Soviet authorities should have just owned theirs. Act 3, Monsieur Grapefruit. You'll recall from episode 1 how in-tourist guides were so-called warriors on the ideological front. They had to present the Soviet Union in a good light, combat slanderous propaganda, and make sure tourists didn't stray. 
But since tour guides had the most contact with foreigners, the task of monitoring tourists also fell to them. They were the frontline defense against the ideological viruses Soviet authorities believed foreigners carried. Most tourists' contact with Soviet life was mediated through a guide, and group tours were designed to be whirlwind trips filled with activities to keep tourists busy during the typical week to two week trip. They had no free time, that they were always busy with three, four, or five activities a day. There wasn't a lot of opportunity to go out on the street and try and converse with the Soviet people. So it's mostly on restrictions on what they weren't allowed to do, rather than the KGB following them around or kind of surveilling them secretly. Nevertheless, in-tourist guides served as the first filtration system in weeding potential troublemakers. Guides, for example, are expected to write reports about the charges. Every tourist department has KGB informants whose job is to report on tourists. But like a lot of things in Brezhnev Soviet Union, going through the motions was a way of life. Many guides found their way to file their reports without compromising themselves. We have this really um, fascinating blog by a former tourist guide that documents how they all basically had a standard report that they would just make copies of and just change the names over and over and over again because they knew that the KGB agents were assigned to the task were like the lowest ranks and they didn't care. That guide was Marina Kendorovskaya. Kendorovskaya joined in tourist after college. One of the dreaded parts of the job was visiting the hotel's sixth floor, where the scary KGB guys sat. Guides had to file daily reports to a KGB handler about the tourists in their group. Here's a few passages from her blog post. At first, I was terrified of going to the sixth floor. But once inside the office, all the fear left forever. The great and terrible Wizard of Oz suddenly appeared to be a small, white-haired grandpa hunched over his table, and you wanted to do something nice for him, like help him across the road. Later, we met with the rest of the Chikisti, and they also looked old, slightly senile, nice retired guys who simply loved playing spies. The elderly washed-up agents playing spy inspired Kendorovskaya to come up with a game of her own. In addition to working with tourists, we also had to dutifully write a report. Technically, it wasn't hard, but the entry in the secret notebook? Yuck. I don't know who wrote what, but I had my stable of tourists who safely migrated from one report to another. Their names were Monsieur Tomato, Monsieur Citron, Monsieur Cucumber, but my favorite was Monsieur Grapefruit. All of them, and especially Grapefruit, unanimously admired the socialist way of life, the policies of the Soviet state, generally everything they saw and learned in our country, thanks to heroic efforts of their guide. That is, me. The KGB was a centralized, massive, and hierarchical organization, and the agents tasked with surveilling tourists were at the very bottom. So they are either just out of school, or, or as I describe, total washouts. They're often made fun of. They're like, they are like the lowest, the dumbest people, whereas the real work is done by people who are either posted abroad or whose job is to conduct active operations against foreigners. For most, KGB surveillance was an accepted nuisance. The dark days of Stalinist terror were past. Being monitored was the price of visiting the Soviet Union. 
Many also understood that these young in-tourist guides were victims of circumstances. People actually understand, when they go to the Soviet Union, they understand that the Soviet Union is not kind of this Stalinist society anymore. They understand that the guides are normal people who have to do a difficult job. They often create warm relationship with them. They often comment on how warm and friendly Soviet people are, on how much they enjoy meeting foreigners. And that points back to the paradox of post-war Soviet reality. So I think the main thing is that people kind of understand that there is a system which is like official and, and harsh and hostile. And there is a reality which is, which is basically that Soviet people crave contact. Next time on Teddy Goes to the USSR, Teddy Goes Shopping. One of my earliest and most faithful sources of information was simply to go into department stores and see what was selling and how much it was. Soviet consumption is really inferior to the United States. And this links to another trope, and this is uh, Soviet Union's military strength versus its pathetic daily life. Go to the stores and you'll see that the production and distribution of goods do not correspond to each other. Selling the American way was the effort the United States government put forth to fashion a outward-facing narrative about what it meant to be American. No, 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 like, don't worry. Yes, they have Sputniks, but their cars are still rubbish. Uh, yes, they have Sputniks, but they still can't buy what you take for granted in their shops. And it becomes this kind of quintessential expression of this larger cultural cold, cold war. From the standpoint of consumer goods, I was in a vast third world country. Pathetic and ridiculous and something like uh, whatever the Soviet Union uh, sells as meat to its citizens is inedible by standards in any other place in the world, things like that. They just knew that we were ahead, we stayed ahead, and therefore we must have had better. Most of my Soviet friends had gone abroad to Eastern Europe, and that of course opened their eyes to so much. There was this present in Soviet imagination. So American objects are wanted and desired with people. But it's also being used to proclaim effectively the failure of the socialist project. Look at these Soviet people. They don't want socialism. They don't want equality. What they really want is blue jeans, Western records, American cars. Western fashions are becoming much more uh, of an authority. Well, you didn't see clothing on sale for the most part. What you found was the yard goods in the early 70s, about half of all unsold merchandise were unfashionable clothes. The quality of goods such as electrical appliances is the same as it was in the West 10 years ago. There was a time in, in the early 60s when any washing machine would be gladly purchased by a Soviet urban consumer or a rural consumer. Fast forward to the late 60s and early 70s, they want automatic machines that are not manual, and they're prepared to pay more for these machines, and they're prepared to wait. Car was king. The first question is always, do you own a car? You know, the car was one of the hardest aspects of the Soviet dream to achieve. It was a Soviet dream. 
in a lot of ways Soviet consumers are becoming modern consumers in, in very much a Western understanding of this word. What made it Soviet was how people went about obtaining it. <laughs> I often through hook and crook, through connections, so they knew how to work the system pretty much. Teddy Goes to the USSR is written, edited, and produced by Sean Guillory. Sarah Passerini did the voiceover for Marina Kendorovskaya. Thanks to Dina Feinberg, Alex Hazanov, and Andrew Jacobs for their participation. And special thanks to Teddy Rowe for sharing his story, diary, and photographs. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions, Kevin McLeod, and Elliot Holmes. Funding for Teddy Goes to the USSR was provided by the Carnegie Corporation of New York, the Russian East European Eurasian Studies Center at the University of Pittsburgh, and the monthly patrons of the SRB podcast. If you want to learn more about Teddy's trip and the Soviet Union, go to the series website at teddy2ussr.com. And if you're enjoying Teddy Goes to the USSR, please consider becoming a patron of the SRB podcast so we can do more narrative audio like this. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog. And you can follow Teddy Goes to the USSR on your favorite podcast app.